Well, before I ask you to, to stand and rise as we listen to God's Word being read from Mark chapter 10, I, I just want to uh, give you a little bit of peek behind the curtain, if you will. <laughs> this thing called being a pastor often is, is, is an interesting thing, and the Lord does interesting things to guys like me uh, throughout the week when we have all intents and purposes of going one direction, and He then begins to steer us perhaps in a little bit of a different direction. Uh, I thought I was in a really good path about Tuesday or Wednesday, which is a little bit unusual for me anyway, so I, my, my antenna was already up of, God, what are you doing here, right? This isn't the way you normally work in my life. I even sent out Autumn, the, the, the text and the title, way earlier than I normally do because I thought I had a really good track on things, and I was on it this week. And then the Lord said, yeah, well, we're going to do something a little bit different, Ryan, come about Thursday afternoon. Not that it's completely different, and I'm going to try to mash the two paths I was on together this morning. But we sang this morning an interesting song, and, and really what led me on this little bit different path was as I was preparing for worship this week and leading worship, and it really was a song, right? Um, the song that we sang after the assurance of pardon, and it was talking about what we boast in. And that began a thought process in my mind of hey, what is it that I boast in and how is it that I boast? And am I boasting in my wealth and in my might and my wisdom and all of these things? And then the chorus rang true. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. And it quickly began to spur in my own spirit. Wait a minute. This has a lot to do with what we're talking about this week. So what do we boast in this morning? Who are we? Let's rise. Hear God's Word. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be reading a bit of Scripture this morning. It's a familiar passage, I believe, um, but that's good. From Mark 10, 17 to 31, hear the reading of God's Word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do, you, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus said, looking at him, <clears throat> loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. Sell. All that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there was no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with 
persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for sending your Holy Spirit to us to guide us, to mold us and to shape us. And so, Lord, I pray that these words that you have for your people here this morning would indeed do just that. That they would mold us, that they would shape us, and they would make us more like Christ. And it's in his name that we pray all of these things. Amen. You may be seated. As humans created in the image of God, we are by design social people. It's natural for us to orientate ourselves by the world around us and and, and by what the world around us says to us. We are drawn in to what the people around us are doing and, and saying, particularly if they're talking about us. Historically, this social dynamic has played itself out in workplaces, schoolyards, church settings, and various other social rituals. But in the last 15 or 20 years, something interesting has come into the scene. And it's this thing called the internet. And not only the internet, but social media has created a much more vast arena into which we explore the world around us. And essentially, how we know ourselves and how what we think Other people know about us. For we know this with just a few short clicks or a funny or a witty saying or a nice photograph. It doesn't take very long for people either to affirm and validate us or to chastise us and criticize us in a moment's time. All we have to do is click like or not click anything at all. And that says just as much, right? Why is social media, have you ever thought, why is social media such a powerful draw? Why does, it, why does it suck us in the way that it does? There are a multitude of things why, and you can go ahead and Google that, right, and see why that is. I think, Ryan thinks, on the surface, it fills a need. It fills a need that we desperately want. It fills our need to be validated. It gives us an identity. Our need for validation is something at the core, right, of of who we are. Who am I and what do I portray to the world? What does the world think about me? And do they validate what I am portraying? Is what I'm communicating to you what I think about myself? Or are you saying something back to me that's different? Much of the way we go about life is for the world to accept us. We want the world to accept us. We want the world to accept us for who we are. We are. None of us wants to be just simply taken at face value all the time. We want people to do the hard work to get to know us, to get to know our nuances, to understand how we tick and and why we tick the way we tick. We don't want people to cast quick judgments on us. We want to be known and we want to be validated. We want people to look at us objectively and to consider everything about us before they make a decision. We want people to recognize our righteousness, don't we? We want people to recognize how we serve in church. We want people to recognize all the committees that we serve on or don't serve on. We want people to see the boards that we serve on. 
We want people to recognize our children and how smart they are, what good athletes they are, what good students they are, how many friends they have, how successful they are. We want ourselves and we want our families to be validated. And that drives us and it moves us in so many ways. But you may be scratching your head and saying, Ryan, well, that's not really what I'm after, I don't think. I'm going to encourage you to keep scratching. And I don't think it takes too long of a scratch before we recognize that validation is a vital part of who we are. Think about how you woke up this morning. Or think about at the end of the day yesterday. Did you have a good day or did you have a bad day? What constituted a good day or a bad day? What made it a good day or a bad day? If we, if we look, I think, in, in some level, if we had a good day, that means that someone told us that we did a good job. That we were validated. Validated in our person. Validated in our kids. Validated in our job. Validated in who we are as individuals or as a family or as a corporate body. And most times when we have a bad day, it means that someone has criticized us. Told us that we didn't do a good job. And maybe we didn't. Maybe we did. But what's being communicated? And we have this desperate desire to to be validated and to say, yes, you are who you are and you're good and you're right. And so to be validated is a common denominator in all of our lives, I would put before you. If you don't believe me, just ask Oprah Winfrey. She'll tell you. In her address to the graduating class of Harvard 2013, yes, Harvard, Oprah Winfrey was addressing the Ivy League Harvard where many of our brightest young minds and graduates come from, she said exactly these things. Now, however you think about Oprah Winfrey, she has a voice, and one that many, many, many people listen to, right or wrong. She says this, There's a common denominator in our human experience. Most of us, I tell you, we don't want to be divided. What we want is to be validated. We want to be understood. And then in her famous last speech that she gave on her last television show, she says these words, I've talked to nearly 30,000 people on this show, and all 30,000 had one thing in common. They all wanted validation. They want to know, do you hear me? Do you see me? Does what I say mean anything to you? Friends, this is the reality of the human experience, isn't it? We want to be validated. We want to be told that we're correct and that we're right and someone understands us for who we are. And this is the reality of the rich young ruler, isn't it? Why did the rich young ruler come to Jesus? Mark tells us that he ran up to Jesus. He didn't stumble into Him. He didn't just wander up to Him. He didn't slowly walk up to Jesus, but he ran to Jesus and he fell at His feet and he kneeled And as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark a number of times, when when people fall at their knees, it really is a form of worship. He worshiped Jesus in that moment. And he says, good teacher. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus, remember what Jesus says to him. Not something that we would necessarily think would be the the, the quick-witted response that we were expecting. Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. The man's question is immediately about the kingdom of God, isn't it? 
How do I get into the kingdom of God? How do I get there, Jesus? What do I have to do? Who am I that, need, that, that I can get in? But looking further into what the rich young man was saying, it becomes apparent that something greater is at stake. Something more foundational is at stake. He says to the man, Jesus does, you call me good because you need essentially a barometer for understanding good. You want me to validate that you have obeyed all of these things. Jesus says, you remember there, there's two tablets of the Ten Commandments, right? The first five or four or so are really given over to how we love God, right? What's the greatest commandment that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The first tablet. The second tab- tablet is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus says to him is, you've, you've obeyed the, the second tablet. You've done well to treat your brothers and sisters well. You, you have done well what the Lord has given you and the people in His house. But there's something else. He says to the man, you call me good because you need a barometer by which to measure your righteousness. And you think you measure up. Jesus' reply is very simple. You may have obeyed all of these commandments in the second tablet, but you have not obeyed the first. You have not obeyed the very first commandments of you shall have no other gods before me. The rich young ruler is seeking validation in his power, in his righteousness, in his ability to lead, in his wealth. But Jesus tells him that he has it all wrong. You got it all wrong, man. You see, this young man desperately wants affirmation, doesn't he? I've done all of that. I, I, I've, I've obeyed all of these things. And yet there's still a hole in my heart. What do I have to do? So much so that this young man comes to Jesus and asks for Jesus' validation on his life as a good teacher. But then it's impossible for this young man to give up the very things that he thinks validate him. His perception of who he is is the very thing that gives him in his mind validation. And Jesus points back at him and says, No! You, you have it twisted. You have it warped. Your validation is not what you think it is. And it's impossible for him to give up the very core of who he is. The very things that make up what defines him as a man. Meaning wealth, power, leadership, authority. In this moment, this young man for the first time in his life was really truly wrestling with the cost of the kingdom. The kingdom that he had in mind was something different. The kingdom that he had in mind was one of obedience, self-righteousness. And this idea, this definition of kingdom was now being shaken and shaken to the very core of who he is. Wait a minute. I've done all these things and you're telling me no? Everything he thought he had, everything he thought he was, Everything he thought he was was right was now being turned on its head. There is something different about the kingdom of God. And the cost is great. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, if you have not read that book, you have a homework assignment for this afternoon. Go back to Google. Go to Amazon. Have you ever heard of a thing called Amazon? 
And the cost of discipleship is probably about $5.99 used from a good source. Go buy it. Go read it today. Just little parentheses, right? You didn't, yeah, go read it. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uses the story of the rich young ruler as an example of the cost of discipleship. He doesn't use it as a good example, by the way, right? Bonhoeffer says this young man wanted Jesus and. Bonhoeffer calls this and. Jesus and. This young man wanted Jesus and his wealth. This young man wanted Jesus and his power. Jesus and his leadership. Jesus and his position. Jesus and his land. Jesus and. Jesus. You get the picture, right? So the question that's before us this morning is, as we search our hearts, I wonder, what are our ands? What is it in my life that I say, okay, I like this kingdom of God as long as I can keep this. As long as I can have Jesus and my pride... As long as I can have Jesus and my comfort, as long as I can have Jesus and my security, as long as I can have Jesus and my middle class job, as long as I can have Jesus and whatever that and is, as long as I can have Jesus and my wife or my husband and my kids, then I'm okay. This is what Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler. What is the cost of the kingdom to you? You remember the last time you purchased a car? Even in the best of experiences, right? The car buying process is an exhausting undertaking. It's tedious, it's obnoxious, it's annoying, it's frustrating. There's research and consideration done long before you even arrive at the dealer, right? You're already exhausted before you even walk your first foot onto the lot because you mentally prepare yourselves for the, for the battle, don't you? And then you understand, too, that, okay, this is, this is something that's going to be just a long day, a long few hours. Then you arrive, and you, you understand that you're going to purchase this vehicle. And then once you even agree on the vehicle that you're going to buy, then there's another long litany of tasks that you have to do in order to just get the key. And it's a long process. But for me, it's not even the time so much it is trying to figure out what I can or cannot afford. Even if you've gotten the best deal, you've just spent a great deal of money on a hunk of metal. And either when you pay cash or you pay a monthly payment, you still have to deal with the cost of the car. And I'm not one that usually has buyer's remorse. It usually doesn't impact me all that much. But when something gets a little bit of expensive and you realize, oh my, I have to pay X amount of dollars right now or X amount of dollars and I have to pay a monthly payment, you walk away and there's a pit in your stomach, isn't there? Like, oh my, that's a lot of money for a piece of metal that I just lost $5,000 when I drove off the lot. The cost leaves us remorseful and sometimes sad and uneasy even when we buy something like a car. The cost of the kingdom for this young man was much more than the cost of a car. But it did leave a pit in his stomach. Things have taken a hold of him and they have left him very sad. But for this young man, it cuts deeper than simply the cost alone, doesn't it? 
It's more fundamental than that. This cost us his validation of who he is as a man, as a leader, as a ruler, as a person in society. Is he willing to pay the cost at the expense of not what he is, but who he is? His struggle is not necessarily even with his wealth. It is, but it's not left to that. But it's also what's attached to his wealth. His validation as a good man is attached to that. And we have a similar struggle, I would say. For many of us, I I think we could even get to the theological truths of Mark 10 very quickly. And we, we could go there fast. But Jesus is perhaps talking about something more fundamental for us too. Like the young man, we too often are left with a pit in our stomachs when we consider the possibility that we may have to give up more than what we initially thought for the kingdom of God. For it's easy for us, I think, to say in some sense, I can give up one thing that's easy to give up. I can give up, you know, a tithe check every month. That's easy to give up for some. I can give up some time. I can give up service. All these things are good and right. Don't get me wrong. This, this is what we do as Christians. But are we willing to give up our identity? Are we willing to give up the very things that we think make us who we are? This is what the rich young, man, the young ruler is wrestling with this morning. Am I willing for the cost of the kingdom to give up who I think I am for Christ? Or what the world says about me for Christ? We may have to go with the very things that we've always thought were the right way to do things. We may have to give up social norms. We may have to give up heritage. We may have to give up status, respect, family, friends. We may have to give up the very thing that validates us for the kingdom. Because what is going on here in this story? Jesus is saying, if you have anything over me, if there's anything before me or anything alongside of me, you have not considered the cost of the kingdom. And Jesus was saying to this young man, the very thing that you think you are is costing you the kingdom. Because you not have put you do not have you do not you have not <laughs> put your soul in trust of me. But maybe what defines us is how we come across to other people. Are we willing to give that up? Or what do other people think about you? Are you willing to give that up? What defines you is what other people say about you or think about you. Many of us go through life struggling for the approval of other people, don't we? Some of us go through life not only struggling with validation from others, but even validation in our own souls. Some of us even struggle through the validation of how Jesus looks at us. Jesus, how, how do you look at me? And, and do I measure up? Just like the young man, what do I have to do? 
Have, have I done enough? Have I served enough? Have I loved enough? Have I, have, I, have I done enough, Jesus, good teacher? We want Jesus to see what we do for Him. To tell Him that we do measure up. That somehow we've helped the mission. We've helped the cause. That Jesus needs me on some level. I'm a pastor, Jesus. You, you Certainly you need me, don't you? You need me to, to lead people to you. These people won't get there without me. The struggle's real. What, what is it that we have that we put in front of Jesus or attach to Jesus? My identity? Does what I say mean something to Jesus? Does it mean anything to Jesus? This is our experience, isn't it, if we're honest with ourselves? This is my experience. And if it's mine, I'm assuming and I think that it's probably most of ours. And Jesus says, what? He says, no one is good but God himself. And so we, like the rich young ruler, when we hear this, we walk away with our tails tucked, our ears back, and in the same place as the rich young ruler. We are sad, we're dejected, and we're defeated, and we say, just like the disciples, if this guy can't get in, what hope do I have? If this guy who has done all of these things, who's wealthy, who's powerful, who leads, has land and, and all of these things, if this guy can't get in, what hope do I have, Jesus? Because I'm just broken, messy, warped. I don't have a chance. If everything I've worked for is not who I think I am, then what do I have? And then here is where the key verse of this passage comes in. What is impossible with man is possible with God. It's impossible for us to, to gain or to have or to receive validation on our own, isn't it? For in Romans, Paul tells us no one is righteous. Not that guy, not that lady, not me, not you. No one is righteous. And Paul says to the church at Ephesus, he takes it one step further. He actually says not only are you not righteous, but you are actually dead in your sin and your trespasses. We're not only damaged, we're not only broken, but in our sin we are dead. So therefore, just as the young man found out there's nothing in him, there's nothing in us also, even the things that we think validate us or define us and make us important, those are not what ultimately makes it possible. That's not the cost of the kingdom. What is impossible within man is only possible with God. And so what we see in this text and with, the, with this young ruler was that he was not able to see his worth. He was not able to see his worth in the perspective and the sight that Jesus had upon him. For it says to us that Jesus looked on him and loved him, and yet the man still could not see. His identity is not found in the things of Jesus, but it's found in the things of the world. And he thought it was his righteousness that would get him in. This man is defined by, by the love of wealth, power, and authority, and not with Jesus. He had a whole bunch of ands. Our true identity then, where is it found? Where is our validation actually found? 
It's not in who I am or what I've done. Where, where, is, where is it that I can go? Where is my hope? If we echo what the disciples have said, if this guy can't get in, what hope do I have? And as we sung already this morning, it's at the cross. For it's at the cross where we see that we are, are more broken than we can ever dare imagine. But it's also at the cross where we are more loved than we ever dare dream. So it's at the cross then where we find our validation. We find our validation in what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. And it's at the cross where we see the true cost of the kingdom. The cost that Jesus paid. The cost where He was pierced and bloodied and hung on a tree and was crucified and died and buried. This is the true cost of the kingdom. And He paid it for us. Colossians 2, 13-14, read these words to us. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulation that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away. And he nailed it to the cross, and that is the cost of the kingdom. The kingdom, the cost that Jesus has paid. And once our desires for validation and our own righteousness have been mailed, nailed to the cross, and we understand that, Paul then tells the Galatians, and he tells us this morning from chapter 4, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Is there a more glorious validation or affirmation than those words? You were once an alien. You were once a foreigner. You were once not important. But now you are and you are a son and a daughter and an heir in the kingdom of Christ. That is grace. That is what the cost bought you. So we no longer have to try and measure And say to Jesus, what have I got to do? But rather we turn to Jesus and we praise Him for what He has already done. We don't longer have to worry what's going to happen to us just as what the rich young ruler was really wanting. What's going to happen to me? Am I in or am I out? But we know that we have been affirmed in Christ Jesus. We have been validated by what He has already accomplished and completed and finished. As humans, then it's natural for us to orientate ourselves by the world around us. By what the world around us says to us. But my encouragement to us this morning is may we not be defined by the world. May we not be defined even by our friends and our family. Friends, what the Gospel says to you is you are defined by Jesus Christ and what He has done for you. The cost that He has paid. The cross is what gives you validation and worth and brings you into the kingdom. And so then I will leave you with these words from 1 Peter chapter 2. If you are wondering, like the rich young ruler, who am I? Where am I? What do I have to do? Have I done enough? says these words. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful life. Who are you? Who are you, Christian? 
You are a chosen person. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priest. You are a people belonging to God Himself because of the cost that Jesus paid. The cost of the kingdom. This is good news. May we find our hope. May we find our affirmation, our validation in the reality that we are a chosen people. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for what you have accomplished for us. We give you praise for who you are and what you have done. And so Lord, wherever we find ourselves this morning, may we find ourselves indeed at the cross. For it's there where we understand the cost of the kingdom and that you have paid that for us. And so Lord, now as we prepare to enter into this time of celebration, this feast, we pray that you would take these elements and that you would move our hearts and our lives, shape us into the reality and the knowledge of just what it is and who we are in you. That we indeed are a chosen people, a holy nation, a priesthood, bought by the precious blood of Christ. Lord, we give you thanks and praise. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus, who lives and has called us to himself. Amen.